Well, good morning. Okay, I rebuked first service because they were terrible. You guys have three times the amount of people and we're worse. So we'll try that one more time. We are in the Lord's house. We get to gather as his people to worship him. Good morning. There we go. What a beautiful day when God's people can gather to praise his good name. Uh, welcome to Christ Bible Church. Uh, if you have just gotten here, friends of the Toma family, or those joining us online, we are so glad that you get to join us as we dive into the word of our Lord uh, in the book of Jonah. Uh, my name's Randy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great honor of finishing the book of Jonah. And before we read chapter 4, uh, I want to get us set up for what is about to unfold. Uh, over and over, as we've read the book of Jonah, we see this theme of justice, a, a desire for justice. And if we're honest, we all desire justice. Uh, we even see this in secular society when a pursuit of justice is weaponized in the form of propaganda in order to manipulate people into adopting various views in TV, ad, news articles, on and on and on. Justice is something that is part of God's law that's written on our hearts, and so we, as his creation, thirst for what is right. Of course, sin distorts this, and thus the justice people often seek is not justice at all. Here in Arizona, we experienced a form of this false justice this week. What happened, do you ask? Well, the Dallas Mavericks, who maliciously ended the season of the Phoenix Suns two weeks ago, were humiliated in short order uh, in the next round of the NBA playoffs. And so for all of us that are Phoenix Suns fans, uh, myself probably at the forefront, uh, I would be lying to you if I said it was not a deeply satisfying thing to see, right? We love when things that were done to us, wrongs that we feel like were committed, are righted. And so when this team who maliciously and mercilessly beat the Phoenix Suns uh, two weeks ago on that Sunday uh, that we all remember, uh, we thirsted for justice. And it seems silly to even talk about justice this way, but I only do that because this is a small glimpse of what's lurking inside of each and every one of us, a desire for others who do wrong to us to receive punishment for their errors. We want justice. But Jonah, poor little Jonah, will not experience this. He comes face to face as we have moved through his story here, not with the justice of God, but with the mercy of God. And his response is one that all of us, if we're honest, see in ourselves all too frequently. And before we read this final chapter, I want to recap for those of you that haven't been here the last few weeks or are not familiar with the story of Jonah, what is actually happening? Who is Jonah? Well, Jonah is a prophet which means he is a man chosen by God to deliver the message of God to God's people. God shows up to his prophet Jonah and says, Jonah, go to that great city Nineveh. Tell them I have heard of their wickedness. Judgment is coming. Jonah hears this message from God and says, nah, no thanks. He hops on a boat. And he heads in the opposite direction. While he's on this boat, a great storm comes and it's very turbulent. Uh, they finally figure out what is the source of this storm? Why is this happening to us? Well, it's because of this man, Jonah. Uh, and so 
Graciously, Jonah agrees to be thrown off of this boat. He lands in the sea uh, where a fish swallows him up, and he is destined for a watery grave. Uh, But as Jonah sits inside of this large uh, fish, Jonah repents. He reaches out to God, and he experiences God's mercy. As a result, the fish spits Jonah out, and God comes to Jonah again and says, Go to Nineveh. Jonah says, Okay, I get it. I'll go. He arrives in Nineveh in chapter 3, where he announces God's coming judgment on this city, calling everybody to turn from their evil and their violence. I imagine Jonah is delivering this message with a little bit of glee. He's happy that God's going to destroy these people, and so he marches around the city. He delivers this message in whatever form that takes, uh, but something unexpected happens. Jonah doesn't expect the king to call for a fast and repentance for the entire city. The entire city puts on sackcloth goes from a, uh, and goes on a fast and calls out and repents and says, we will turn from our evil, from our violence. And so chapter 3 ends as God sees these people of Nineveh turning from the evil, turning from violence, and it tells us that God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them. And so it's on the heels of this relenting of God that chapter 4 picks up and we bring the story to conclusion. So let's read together God's word, Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, Till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you knowing we, we are like Jonah. Lord, we want to see punishment delivered 
to the wicked. Lord, punishment to those who bring us harm. And yet we come face to face with how your mercy is calling us to treat people differently than that. And so, Lord, we come before you knowing that we can't do this hard task of loving our enemies, of caring for our enemies without your help. We pray that as we gather and we continue to work through your word this morning, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, in our minds, convicting us of areas that we might have malice towards people when instead we might need to have mercy. Let us, let us not be like Jonah, loving a plant, but hating a people. Father, make us to see and to act as you act. Mold us into the likeness of your son, Jesus, as we work through these words this morning. Amen. So what is happening? Jonah sees these people, a wicked, evil, brutal people who have caused significant harm to Jonah's people. And what does Jonah see? He, see them, he sees them turn from their evil and their violence. But what is the response as chapter 4 begins? To the repentance of these people from their turning from evil, the mercy that God displays towards them in the life of Jonah as a result. Verse 1, it displeased Jonah. Not just a little bit. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was mad. He is mad that they've, that they've turned. He's mad that God has relented from his judgment. And so as chapter 4 opens up, we have this image of Jonah sulking, having a pity party as he walks out of the city, probably kicking up dust and mumbling under his breath, complaining, this is not fair. How could you do this, God? This isn't right. And he sets camp up in the desert. But on his way, he prays. And in this chapter, we will come face to face with two things that Jonah's life reveals to us. First, real forgiveness requires a heart change. Real forgiveness requires a heart change. And two, the blinding effect of hatred. The blinding effect of hatred. What do we mean real forgiveness requires changing of our hearts? Well, as we look at Jonah, Jonah clearly does not want to see the people of Nineveh forgiven. He wants them destroyed. Quickly, as the chapter unfolds, it makes, he makes it clear why he ran away in the first place and fled on the boat. He doesn't want these people to experience who he knows God really is, merciful. And so he says, God, this is why I didn't want to go. I knew that you would be too nice to them. I knew that you are just and merciful. And look, I was right. You are too kind. I can't bear it. They've done all of this bad stuff to my people. Nothing's going to happen to them. It's just not fair. Kill me now. I don't want to live if this is what I have to live with. If these people go unpunished, I can't bear to live in a world like that. And so as Jonah is praying to God and submitting his disapproval, he's revealing something about himself. He can't bring himself to have mercy on these people. It's just too difficult. They've hurt him too much. They've caused him too much pain. And all he can desire for them is their destruction. 
But we are meant to read this story and the conclusion of Jonah in context with everything that's happened. It was not long before this when Jonah found himself on the wrong end of certain destruction. He sat inside the belly of a fish knowing a grave was his destiny. God's judgment was upon him for his rebellion and he knew this is where he was headed. Yet he reached out to God from the depths of the sea knowing his destiny is destruction and what does God do? He returns Jonah with great mercy. And yet now, when the Ninevites do the same thing as Jonah had just done, Jonah does not want mercy for them. The truth is, holding on to anger is so much more personally satisfying than forgiving somebody. In our minds, when we hold on to anger, we feel justified in our, in our attitudes towards people. We are above them. We can cast judgment on them. They are bad. We are good. And so we hold on to anger. We don't like to release it because it gives us a type of satisfaction in our hearts, in our minds. We love to be mad. We love even often to be a victim because it puts us in a position above other people. Forgiveness is hard. We love to experience forgiveness. We don't often love to give it. It's a struggle. We all want the mercy and the patience when other people are dealing with us. We want the mercy and patience and love, steadfastness of God. But when it comes to others, we say, ah, but they've done so much. How could I forgive them? How could I ever want good for them? But here God, in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, is showing this is just what we are called to do. We are called to forgive those who are our enemies. This is more than just an absolution of wrong, saying, it's okay, forget about it. What is at stake here isn't just saying, I'll let it go. It's changing the disposition that you have towards the person you are offering forgiveness to. And for Jonah, he can't just let what Nineveh has go. He needs to actually change the way he views the people of Nineveh, but he can't do it. What we're called is to replace anger and hostility towards people with instead offering mercy and gentleness and praying for blessings in their life. But if we're honest, this is one of the biggest struggles in life. This is one of the hardest things to do. We say we forgive somebody, but the first chance we have, we bring it back up. We're at work. Somebody drops the ball again, and you say, hey, you know, I really need you to do this, but you're causing me a lot of extra work because you keep messing up. And they say, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, it's okay, I forgive you. You know, just do better next time. But then what happens the next time they inevitably do something wrong? You're like, man, you stink. This is the fifth time this week, right? We didn't actually forgive. We didn't actually forget. We still hold all of the things that person has done liable to them, and we bring it up, and we harbor resentment. Even more in marriages where you live day in and day out with somebody. How often do you forgive your spouse for something, but three months later, when something happens, and you're like, yeah, but you did this. And they're like, well, I thought you said you forgave me. Eh, you know, kind of. Uh, no. Forgiveness means saying, letting go. I'm no longer going to desire hostility or anger or punishment for what you've done. I don't want you to experience what you've done to me. What I want for you is blessing and mercy and the goodness of God. Forgiveness is difficult but it's one of the high callings of being a Christian. We are called to be people who serve even our enemies. 
When God gives his moral law in uh, Exodus, Exodus 23, 4 and 5, he talks about enemies this way. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. What is God saying? Your enemies, the people who have caused you harm, the people who are thorns in your side, you have a moral obligation as my people to care for them. You can't just see something coming and say, well, I'm not going to do anything, but I'm not going to do any harm to them, but I'm going to prevent myself from helping them. I'll let their ox die. This possession, their money, whatever it is, right? God says, you are obligated. If you see this happening, your enemy, if you are my people, you don't just let this ox die. You do whatever you can to rescue it. That is your obligation. You should serve and love your enemies. Our attitudes towards those who are opposed to us, who cause us harm, should be seeking their good. And so when someone you really struggle with at work and slips up and you see it, you should step in and fix the error. Not make a big deal about it, or worse, just let it go by because it's going to result in a really bad situation for them. It might be a small thing to do that. We might even want to say, like, hey, man, I fixed your error. But what God is even saying is just love these people. Serve them. They're your enemies, but you are called to treat them with mercy and kindness. Jonah is telling us that we have a responsibility to seek even the good of those who are by nature our enemies. If we call ourselves God's people, if we are Christians, we have to do this. But it's not something we can do if we hold on to resentment. Jonah, poor little Jonah, cannot do this. He sits there. Anger has consumed him to the point that if God is going to give mercy to these people, this is no longer a world or a situation he sees worth living. Kill me now, he says to God. And God looks at him and says, Oh, Jonah, do you feel good about your anger? And yet Jonah continues to probably pout. But what does God do? He sends, he sends a mercy to Jonah. Even in Jonah's anger, even in Jonah's sin here, he sends something to Jonah, a plant. But Jonah can't see what is happening. Why? Because there's a blinding effect that hatred has had in his life. He can't actually see things correctly. He prays, he sets up camp, He's sitting in this hot desert under his booth, which means tent. And he looks at this city and he stares. Why? Why does he do this? Hasn't God just said he's going to relent from disaster? Well, I believe Jonah's sitting there wondering, is God going to relent from his relenting and wipe these people out after all? I'll wait and see. 40 days isn't that long. And so I'm going to sit and wait to see if these people truly will be saved or if they will be destroyed. But God's mercy is here, even on his wayward, stubborn prophet, as this plant grows and provides a great shade for Jonah. The pounding sun is no longer on him, and his disposition changes. If you look at verse 1, what's it say? Jonah is exceedingly mad. By the time we get to verse 6 now, he's got this plant. What is Jonah looking like? He's exceedingly joyful. He's happy because of this plant. All of this is to show just how blind Jonah has become. His anger towards the Ninevites has clouded his judgment. He can't see God or people 
rightly. Thousands of people have just turned from doing evil, and the result that Jonah had was burning anger. The small plant grows to provide a little bit of shade for Jonah, and what does he have? An overwhelming sense of joy. But for Jonah, this joy turns out to be fleeting. And just as the Lord caused the plant to grow and give him shade, he causes it to wither and die in a day, and the blindness of Jonah is revealed as the story is saturated with irony. The prophet cares more about this plant than he does all of the people of Nineveh. One commentator writes it this way. The focus here is clear. Jonah could not accept that grace should work in the favor of his enemies, but neither could he accept life without grace. God's graciousness to Nineveh was simply unacceptable. God's withdrawal of grace to Jonah was also unacceptable. He longed for a God who was partial like himself, instead of a God who was gracious, merciful, and responsive to the cries of all of creation. He wanted his own personal God rather than the God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the dry land. Sin manifesting itself in Jonah's case here in furious, blinding anger towards the people of Nineveh shows two things in Jonah's life here. One, Jonah is looking to the things of this world for joy and satisfaction rather than God. Two, Jonah is unable to see himself or the people of Nineveh rightly. Jonah had rejoiced in the relief that the plant provided from the heat of the sun, but is angry over the relief that the Lord had provided Nineveh from the heat of the Lord's wrath. Jonah was a rebellious, stubborn, and hard-hearted prophet. He had just experienced God's own saving mercy, but now does, want others, does not want others to experience that same grace. Jonah had put people's lives in jeopardy. He caused great financial uh, damage to the business of these sailors in the beginning of the story. Indeed, they almost died and their ship almost sank. And yet this man, who had caused all this calamity for people, receives mercy. Even more, the blessing of God in this plant as he sits in the desert to give him shade. But Jonah is unable to see himself rightly. His joy, his satisfaction is not in the work of God. It's in this plant. The temporal created things bring Jonah his happiness. We experience this time and time again in our lives, do we not? We chase after the temporal things that we think promise us joy and relief, but they turn out to be fleeting and temporary. We're called to not be like Jonah, to find joy in the work of God instead of in the created things. But for Jonah, his hatred towards the people of Nineveh has caused spiritual blindness. He can't see the situation right. Jonah's inability to forgive and to rejoice in the repentance of Nineveh is directly contrasted with that of God. Worse, Jonah rejoices in that which he had not made in the plant and is so mad that he's willing to die when the plant is gone. However, jo however, God, who's made not just the plant, but all of the people and the cattle of Nineveh, according to Jonah, cannot and should not rejoice in their repentance. The reality is that God is the creator, creator of everyone and everything. This means that all of creation, the stars in the sky, the grass in the fields, even men and women belong to him uniquely because he is the creator. And like Jonah, we may not always understand why God does what he does with his creation. 
But the challenge to Jonah and to us today is clear. We need to learn to take off the blinders of our anger, even if it's righteous anger, and learn to show the same mercy that God has shown us. And as the story winds down, we see the entire narrative. It's not primarily about God's message towards the people of Nineveh. It's about God's work in the heart of his stubborn prophet and servant Jonah. Patiently, God has been working time and time and time again to teach Jonah what Jonah needs to do and to learn. Will Jonah see as God sees? Will the prophet of God care about God's creation as God cares? The lack of care in Jonah is directly opposed to the loving care of God. God has had mercy on, the, on Jonah, on the Ninevites, and even Jonah again with this plant, but Jonah in turn does not seem to have developed one single ounce of care for the people that God has created. No, Jonah had the capacity to pity, to feel sad for these people, to rejoice in their repentance and the relenting of God's destruction, and yet he refuses to. The only thing Jonah pities in this story is the plant. And it's in this moment, as the book of Jonah ends, that God reminds Jonah he had not labored for this plant. It wasn't Jonah that made it grow. It didn't ultimately belong to Jonah. It was a gift from God for Jonah to enjoy, a blessing to provide him relief from the unrelenting sun in the desert as he camped out. Jonah has to understand that his status as an Israelite, as one of God's people, as a prophet chosen by God, is all in itself a mercy from God to Jonah. Jonah has done nothing to be chosen by God and to earn this right. God has simply done it. And yet as Jonah sits in the desert looking at that great city, Nineveh, God reminds him of this simple fact. Jonah, there's 120,000 people in that city, a people who don't know their right hand from their left hand, which is an expression meaning they were ignorant. They don't know the ways of God. They don't know his law. They don't even know what it means to follow him or to sit under God's blessings. Jonah had known all of this from the day he was born. And indeed, he quotes it here in the beginning of chapter 4 when he says, I know that you were a, a merciful, kind God, steadfast and loving. Jonah understands all these things. He's not ignorant like the Ninevites. And yet, in return, he can't see these people correctly. This gentle but firm rebuke of God towards Jonah is meant to help Jonah see as God sees. Jonah sees the city and burns with anger, but God sees this city and has pity. And pity, the word here in Hebrew, is actually an expression that means the eyes flow because of. God looks at Nineveh and his eyes fill with tears. He has pity because of these people because of the evil that they have, because of the waywardness of their heart. He is drawn to tears because of Nineveh. And yet Jonah, the only thing Jonah is crying about is this plant. How foolish does he look? And so the book ends open-ended, asking if God's people will have mercy just as they have received mercy. Will God's people desire mercy forgiveness and blessing for their enemies, or will they desire destruction? When we are forgiven by Jesus, we should be reminded that we're not only absolved from sin, but we've experienced a change in our disposition with God. Before, when we are in our sin, 
We are destined for destruction like the people of Nineveh, like Jonah in the belly of the whale. But God sends his Savior, Jesus Christ, who changes us, not from people destined for destruction, but Jesus takes all of that on himself, and instead what happens, our disposition changes. We receive the righteousness of Jesus and experience the blessings and mercy of God. And as God's people, because we've experienced such a great and undeserved mercy, we are called to be people who give mercy. We can be people that sees as God sees because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Savior. And so as we finish this morning, a few questions for change, questions for self-evaluation. One, what is your relationship with God? Have you prayed to him that you might receive the wrath-avoiding salvation through Jesus? Do you see yourself as someone who receives the blessings of God, or are you afraid of the judgment of God? Have you given your life to him and received salvation? Two, who is it that you need to forgive? Who is it that you not only need to let go of the wrong that they've caused you, but also need to change your heart and your disposition towards that person? Who is it that you not only need to forgive, you need to pray that God blesses them? Three, who and what do you have in your life that can point you to Scripture so that you're confronted with spiritual blindness? We all have areas in our life that we can't properly see. It's one of the great benefits of living in fellowship with other people is they say, Randy, you got this wrong, man. And I say, I didn't even realize that. We need those kinds of people in our life. We need resources that are going to show us when we have spiritual blind spots that are keeping us from seeing and acting as God wants us to. Who do you have in your life that can point you towards Scripture and towards Jesus so you can confront those spiritual blind spots? And finally, and I think the most significant question is Jonah comes to an end. Will you be Jonah or will you be Jesus? What did Jonah do? He ran from his calling to give mercy. What does Jesus do? He runs towards it. He runs towards it so much that he's willing to give his own life for the people that have caused him pain, who have hurt his people. Will we be Jonah or will we be Jesus? Do we have pity, another way of asking this, for the ignorance of those in our post-Christian West? who are ignorant. They don't know the laws of God. They don't know the blessings of God. Do we desire for those people to experience the destruction and the total wrath of God, or do we desire for these people who are ignorant to experience the tremendous blessings and mercy of God? One person here flees to try to prevent the mercy of God in Jonah. The other man, Jesus, comes that he might give life to a wicked and evil people who have rebelled against him from their first day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the story of Jonah, for all it causes us to have to confront in our own lives. Lord, we are people who desire justice. We don't want to see evil continue in the world. But Lord, we desire to be people who want People's lives changed, countries changed, nations changed, Lord, because they come under the knowledge and the mercy of you. And so, Father, would you be people, would, would you help us to be people, 
not consumed by wrath, but instead be people who are consumed by your mercy, who are willing to love sacrificially, and in doing so model Jesus Christ to a watching world who is ignorant of your great mercy. Father, help us to be the people that you have called us to be. Help us to rest in your provision. We ask that you would continue to work in our lives like you work in Jonah's life, constantly bringing about things to shape and change us that we might be the people you've called us to be. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus. The only reason we can accomplish anything, we know that on our own we would be destined for destruction and able of loving and caring like you care. But Lord, because of Christ, we can be formed and shaped and transformed into the likeness of Jesus to a watching world. Thank you for all that you do through the work of your son. Amen.